Thank you, brother. And thank you for those that serve with Greg and leading us in worship. And I appreciate you young men for taking up the offering. I am so glad that you are here with us this morning. I hope you have a Bible, something that you can open up preferably, or maybe something that you can turn on, and that you'll, find, you'll join me in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you came in and you got a copy of the bulletin, on the back of that bulletin there will be some notes if you want to use those or reference those as we work through God's Word together. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 in a few moments. It was in 1901 that the National Institute of Standards and Technologies was developed. Today, they fall under the authority of the U.S. Department of Commerce, but it was originally started as being a national repository of all things related to measurements. If you think about it, in our empirical measurement society, we have, when you talk about the length or the width or the height of something, it's referred to as a basic measurements of an inch. But if someone was to ask you, what is the correct measurement of an inch, how would you define it? Some people may say, well, an inch is this much. You may talk to a fisherman and they may say an inch is this much. And so it all varies as far as what do we define as a measurement of one inch? Thinking about weights, if you go down to the, the basic fundamental of the weight, it all comes down to the measurement of one ounce. And so the question is, well, who defines what measures or what qualifies as one ounce? So to that reason, the United States decided we are going to start the National Institute of Standards and Technology so that we have a baseline. We have a means of measuring and having a standard for all things related to our society and to our culture. And these standards matter even in today. You think about you're driving down the road and you are driving and your speedometer says one thing and the policeman says you're doing something else. Who is the standard? Who has the means of measurement. You may go to the gas station and you may see when you're parking there at the gas station, you may see a truck that is out there at the pumps and, and he may have a whole number of silver canisters that are there as he's blocking a pump. What he's doing is, is he is measuring the amount of fuel that is dispensed. You see, when you think about it, you're going to the gas pump and the gas pump says they gave you a gallon of gas, but who knows whether that's actually a gallon or a half a gallon or a gallon and a half. And so there's this, there's this standard and there's this means of measurement in our society that helps keep everybody on the same page. There are things in the Bible that are given to us, as I would say, God's standards that are helpful for us to know that there are standards that apply to everyone. There are standards when it comes to God's word on how it is that we are conduct our lives, how it is that we are compose our lives, how it is that we are construct our lives, and what is to frame and govern the lives in which we live. God has standards. We've been talking the last week and then this week and the weeks ahead, we've been talking about the core values of the church. And specifically, we've been talking about last week and today and probably next week, we're talking about the first core value of this church. And the first core value you see at the top of your notes is to build families. And we've talked about maybe a supporting idea of, well, how is it that we build families? We build families by supporting the home, by pursuing God's design. And one of the core values we've embraced as a church is that we want to build families. And we do that by pursuing God's design for the home and for the family. So the question last week and the question this week moving forward is, well, how is it that we pursue God's design? 
So last week we were in Genesis chapter one and talking about God's design for the home. Now I realize that right now in this room, we have different varieties of home lives and situations represented. And I don't want anybody to think that just because you don't fit the type that we see in Genesis one or in Genesis two, that means that you're something wrong with you. But everyone in this room represents the union between a man and a woman. And every one of, this, of us in this room represents one degree of family or another. So we've been talking about what is God's design for the home. We talked about that last week in Genesis chapter 2. And this morning we're going to continue in Genesis chapter 3 talking about what is God's standard for the home. If we're going to think about God's design and what God designs a home or a family to be, then we understand that God has given us his word as a standard for how it is to look, how it is to operate, how it is to conduct it. Self. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at this standard. Now, I'm not going to give you some true and straight standards because you can find from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation. You'll see principles, you'll see instructions, you'll see commands. But really what I want to do this morning is to think when we come to those places in Scripture, when we come to those principles, those spiritual principles in our society, when we hear people preach or people teach or people exhort us, how it is that we respond to the standards that God has put in our lives. How do we respond when God is speaking to us? So Genesis chapter three, let me set the context for you. God has created the whole world. Everything then, everything now is a creation of God. And as God created all the animals, he also created Adam and he put Adam in the garden to tend the garden and to take care of all the animals and what God had created. He gets Adam there in the garden and Adam sees a male horse and a female horse. He sees a male gecko and a female gecko. He sees a male bird and a female bird and he's like, hmm, there's not a female version of me. So God says it's not man for, not good for man to be alone. So he creates Eve, brings her to Adam, and he forms that first union, that first marriage that we see in the word of God is God bringing those two together. And at the end of chapter two, you will see there, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked and, and were not ashamed. So the creational account of everything that we know of Adam and Eve, bringing them together, all of that concludes in chapter two. And then starting in chapter three, the conversation shifts. And it changes from what God is creating to what man is now corrupting. So will you start with me in verse one of chapter three, and let's listen to how this breaks apart. And I want to hopefully during our time together this morning, just walk you through how does we respond to God's standards. It says in chapter three and verse one, we're just going to read this first verse to start off with. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The question that Satan comes, he's portrayed as a snake, which is why I believe that I'm in biblical good grounding to abhor all snakes, both poisonous and non-poisonous. But this idea that the snake comes, it's a representative of Satan, and it comes to Eve, and it starts talking to Eve. Now, this isn't Mr. Ed. We don't have any other recordings before now of animals coming and talking to humans. It wasn't when the animals came to be named by Adam that Adam said, what do you want to be named? And the animal said, I want to be named lizard. I want to be named platypus. I want to be named aardvark. No, we don't have any record of any animal speaking to any 
of the humans until you get here to chapter three and it's Satan that comes in the form of a snake. And he comes and he speaks to Eve and what does he say? He doesn't say, how are you? Oh, you're such a beautiful creation of God. Hey, do you love the Lord? He doesn't come and do anything. What does he come to do? He comes to the woman there at the last part of verse one and he says, did God actually say? The first principle I want you to point you to when it comes to God's standards is that we have to listen. We have to listen. See, the question is, what is he saying to Eve? And by extension, Adam. You see, God had already spoken to Adam. He had already told Adam, this is what I want you to do. Let your eyes work up into chapter 2 into verse 15 and listen to what the word of God says. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, God had already spoken to Adam. He had already told Adam, this is what I want you to do. You're in the garden. You're going to till it. You're going to keep it. You're going to take care of all it. There's one tree. Do not touch that tree. Do not eat of its fruit. Do not mess with it. Because when you do, death will come. God had already given them his word. God had already spoken. And if you think about it, Adam and Eve had all the information they needed. There's God. He's in charge. God said, this is where I want you to be. This is what I've given you to do. And this is what I'm telling you to do. They didn't need anybody else to come in with commentary, with explanation, with understanding. They didn't anybody to come in and give them a second opinion. God had already told them, this is what I want you to do. The question is, will Adam and Eve listen to God? You see, there's things in our lives today that are seeking to contradict God's word. And they will come sometimes in very innocent, sometimes in very benign ways, but they will come to you and I and they will whisper in our ears or they will speak in our faces or they'll come through the mouth of friends or through a screen and they'll come and they will question the word of God. They will question the authority of God. They will question what did God say? And the question that we have to ask ourselves is what am I going to listen to? Who am I listening to? You see, Adam and Eve right here, they'd already heard what God had to say. So the question is, is are they going to listen to God? Years ago, I was at Cedar Hills campground. The camp pastor that week was a guy by the name of Steve Spires. He pastored down in Vianne, Oklahoma. And he was a camp pastor that week. And one afternoon he came walking in and he had probably five or six like dollar general sacks full of mousetraps. I'm like, I want to see that preaching illustration. I want to see what's going to go on there. And so he gets there that evening, and he already recruited a, a helper, a guy by the name of Matt Rains, who pastors right now down in Prague. And so he said, Matt, would you help me? And Matt's like, oh, yeah, I'll help you. That'll be great. And without even knowing what he was volunteering to help out with. And so he said, yes, I'll be happy to volunteer. And so the day came, that evening came, and they were getting ready for the evening service, and Steve Spire starts grabbing these mousetraps, and he starts setting them. And then he starts arranging them all over the platform. A hundred different mousetraps all over the platform. And then he takes Matt Rains and he brings him over here and he takes his shoes off so now he's barefoot. And he takes a blindfold and then blindfolds his face. So Matt Rains is sitting over here blindfolded, shoeless. And then Steve Spires comes over here on this side of the platform and he is standing right about in here and he says, so here's what's going to happen. 
All of you students, I want you to make as much noise as possible. I want you to yell, scream, do whatever you want to do, all the things that your parents say you can't do in church, that you're not supposed to do in church. I want you to do it in church. And then he looked at, he looked at Matt and he said, I want you to walk to me by listening to my voice. Now, I tell you, if I was mad, I would have said, no, thank you. <laughs> I resign immediately. And what I saw transpire was then Matt listening to the voice of Steve in the midst of a cacophony of other voices. He made his way very gingerly. I mean, how, how would you do if your big toe is in peril? Okay. Very carefully. And then he would sidestep over here and then he would move over here and he just was walking. How? Because he was listening to the voice of Steve. We come to God's word. God's word speaking to us. The question is, is are we listening? The reality is, is whom we listen to influences what we do. Whom we listen to influences what we do. Sometimes you can get around preachers and you can start listening to preachers and you can tell by what they talk or how they talk, you can tell by who they're listening to. Sometimes when you, when Ron Whitner prays, you know what kind of Bible, he, what translation of the Bible that he grew up on, what translation of the Bible he has because of the these and the thous that he prays with. When people listen to you, when people listen to me, they know the condition of our heart. They know the condition of our attitude because they can hear it in our words. The same way when it comes to what you and I listen to, whom we listen to influences what we do. So here in the text in verse 1, the question is set up. God had already said. Adam and Eve had already heard from God. And now the snake is whispering in their ear saying, oh, are you sure? Oh, does that really apply? Oh, is that really relevant? Oh, is that still the thing? Oh, are you going to listen to God or are you going to listen to me? And unfortunately... Us adults have no idea the strains and the pressures and the battles that these young people are facing today. With so many voices in the school system, so many voices from their peers, so many source voices on their screens telling them, this is okay, this is acceptable, this is popular, this is special, do this and do that. Are we going to listen to God's word? Well, then the question then remains, what are they going to do? Satan comes in there at the last part of verse 1, and he said, did God actually say? So listen to how the woman responds. Notice the snake came to the woman. He didn't come to Adam. Adam is there. We'll see in a few moments. But he comes to Eve, and he said, did God actually say? Well, now you see what the woman responds. It says in verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the interchange comes, the response comes. She looks at the snake and says, yes, oh yes, yes, God said, do not mess with the tree. Do not eat of the tree. Do not touch the tree or you will die. The serpent looks back and even says, oh no, 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 you're not going to die. In fact, what God knows is God's been holding out on you. God's been keeping it from you because God knows when you eat of the tree, you'll be just like God. And the question comes for you and I. And the question is, what are we going to submit to? What are we going to submit to? When it comes to God's word and when it comes to the standards of God's word, 
We first need to listen to what God is saying to us, but then the next question comes, am I going to submit to God's word? You see, the tendency is so many times in our daily lives, we start to think, well, you know what? I actually know better than God. I actually know how I feel. I actually know what I think. I actually know what is best for me. And you and I, whether we admit it or not, whether we realize it or not, we start to act like little gods out of verse five. We start to think that I am in charge of me. I know me and I know what's best for me. We start acting like God. We, 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 we deny, we neglect what God has told us because instead of submitting to God's word and instead of submitting to God's will for our lives, we are going to submit to ourselves. And that's the essence of immaturity. That's the essence of childish. When you have a two-year-old running around and that two-year-old is only concerned with pleasing itself and having its needs and wants satisfied, and when it is not satisfied and then when it is not tendered to, it throws a fit because that little child thinks it's its own God and everything should revolve around it. And unfortunately, we are in a society today that we have way too many parents that are treating their children as they are God's. So the question is, what are we going to submit to? Eve looks at Satan and says, no, God said. Satan looks back at Eve and says, ha, God is keeping something from you. So the challenge then comes, what are you going to do? You see, sometimes in our daily lives, we think that we can do both. We think we can straddle the fence. We think we can submit to God and we can submit to this world. We think that we can do 50% over here and 50% over here. But the reality is, is submission to God is not a percentage. It's not a matter of saying, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to give Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and God's got that. But then I've got this over here. Or we start to think, well, I've done five bad things, so I need to do five good things. Or we start to think about, well, you know what? I need to give extra next week because I didn't give as much last week. Or we start to think about it's all a matter of a point system and we just need to try to keep hitting the marks so we feel good about the rest of our time it's not a percentage the question that adam and eve are facing is the same question that you and i face every single day who is it that we are going to submit to what is it that we are going to submit to it's not the fact that we can submit to both at the same time either we're going to submit to god's word or we're going to submit to the word of the world but we think, well, I can do both. I can do both. But may I warn you this morning that compromise only transfers submission. Compromise does not allow you to submit to both. Compromise just transfers the submission. So when you were over here and you were thinking to yourself, God's word says this is right, this is true, this is holy. And yet the world is over here saying, well, just come and dabble in this. Just come and play in this. It's a matter of saying, when I'm here, I'm submitted to God's word. When I compromise and I edge closer to the world, I am leaving the submission of God. And I am now entering into the submission of the world. I am just transferring what it is that I am submitting to. So the question on the table that Adam and Eve are now facing, primarily Eve because she's the, the, she's the key in the story or the focus of the story. So the question is, is what are you going to submit to? But whether it is Eve or whether it's Adam or you or I today, every single one of us submits 
to something. Every one of us submits to something. Every single person woke up this Sunday morning and said, what am I going to do today? Every single one of us had a decision on where we're going to go, what we're going to do, and how we're going to spend our time. Every single one of us decides, am I going to submit to me or am I going to submit to him? Am I going to submit to the kingdom of God or am I going to submit to the kingdom of this world? Am I going to submit to God's word or am I going to submit to popular culture? What am I going to submit to? G.K. Chesterton was a British theologian from a generation or two ago, and he put this statement there that I put in your notes. He says, for when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And I think about it in this sense because you will see polls now talking about religion, and you'll see polls talking about people, what percentage of religion affiliation they are. And right now, the greatest growing category, the greatest growing section when it comes to these polls is the nuns, the N-O-N-E's. It's the ones that identify and say, I have no identifiable religion or identifiable religion. I don't align myself with the evangelicals or with the Catholics or with any other denomination. And so there's a whole group of people out there that says, we have no affiliation whatsoever. The problem is, is that is not true. You're affiliating with something. You're affiliating with someone. There is no such thing as a person that says, I have no religious affiliation. Why? Because you always believe in something. Whether you believe in yourself, whether you believe in God, whether you believe in a false religion or a true religion, every single one of us believes in something. So the first standard that I want you to think about, or the first key that I want you to think about is to listen. The second key is to submit. When we hear God's word, when we know God's word, and God has given us his standards, we need to listen. Then we need to submit to the standards that God has given us. Thirdly is the question of what are we going to follow? Will we follow God's word? So track with me here in the story. The serpent has come to Eve, asked Eve the question. Eve has responded saying, oh, God said we can touch every tree in the garden, just not this one, not eat of this one. The snake comes in and says, oh, no, no, God's holding something from you. God is keeping something from you. It will not be that bad. And so the question is, what are we going to submit to is down the table, which then leads to what are they going to follow? Verse 6. So... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God had already given them his standards. He had already told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree. The serpent comes and starts to speak to them. They decide they're going to listen to the snake more than they're going to listen to God. The question of what are they going to submit to, what are they going to submit their lives to, they decide we're going to submit to the idea of ourselves, we're going to submit to the, the dreams of our own, we're going to submit to our will and our wishes, and we're not going to submit to God's word. And then it was consummated by what are they going to follow. So they follow through on what they want, and they follow through on their desires, and they decide, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to follow our plan for our lives instead of following God's plan for our lives. 
And I want you to see in the text with me this morning that following is a choice. The following is a choice. In verse 6 it says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a light to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit. It doesn't say she was made to. It doesn't say that she couldn't help it. It doesn't say that, it, it, that, that she had no control over the situation. It wasn't that the snake grabbed her, opened her mouth, force-fed it to her. It wasn't that she was tricked. She knew God said don't do it. She also knew that the snake was telling her to do it. She decided she wanted to do it and it was a choice. What we follow and even in our sin, it is a choice. You may say, well, Spence, everybody sins. Absolutely everybody sins. But you know what? Sin is a choice. You mean to tell me, Spence, that when I sin, it's a choice? Absolutely. Why? Because we choose to rebel against God. We choose to look at God and say, you said no, I'm going to do it anyways. Some of you parents can relate to the idea of looking at that child and saying, don't touch that. And that child looking back at you and making that decision, I think they're bluffing. And they go ahead and do it. And all you parents in the room can relate to that moment of what am I going to do? Am I going to strangle the child? That's not a bad option. Am I going to discipline the child? That's the better option. Or because I'm comfortable in my lazy chair and because people are watching, I am just going to ignore the child ever did it. That's not a good option. Sitting at the fair these last couple of days, I saw some parents, some sweet people, and they got these little kids barely above their kneecaps. And the little kids are running around and that parent says, oh, come over here. And that child looks at that parent and is like, no, I don't think so. And that parent takes off or that, that child takes off. And I always think to myself, that parent's going to chase him. And there that parent goes, starts chasing him. And I think, how differently our culture has flipped. Where instead of we having children follow parents, we have parents following children. It's a choice. It's a choice. And whether we follow God and whether we follow God's word, it is a choice. And when we make that choice on what we're going to follow, make no bones about it. When we follow, it is a direction. Us following is a choice and us following is a direction. So when Adam and Eve, they reached down and grab, I'm sorry, when Eve reached and she grabbed that fruit, she took a bite, she gave it to her husband, he ate other fruit. When they did that, the choice they made was to go in a different direction than God had given them for his life. They chose to go in a direction that they knew was in opposition to God. They chose to do what they wanted and they said what a God wanted. So many times in our families, our families are being torn and they're being tempted and they're being stretched and they're being just under assault because there's so many things in this world that are saying, this is important, that is important. We have parents today that think that their child will not be a success in the eyes of God unless they get an athletic scholarship. So everything about the child's rearing is meant to get a scholarship at school when God has never given us any instruction that that's what God considers success in the kingdom of God. And we start prioritizing things that God doesn't prioritize. We start elevating things that God doesn't elevate. We start doing things that, that God has never called us to do. And what it is, is we're following in a direction. We're following a trajectory of what I think is best, what I want to be. I sit back and I look at my children and I think, well, I want this one to be that. And I want this one to be that. And I want other parents to think I'm being a good father. And I want other people to have uh, approval of me. And so we start doing these things. And it's so easy for us to follow in the direction of the approval and the pleasing of man instead of following in the direction of the approval and the pleasing of God. 
that's following. So what happens? She took the fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband. And he ate. It's a direction. They chose to move in that way. 2003, I found myself deployed first into Kuwait and then into Iraq. Coming out of Kuwait City up to Baghdad, it's about a 20-hour drive in a military vehicle. And leaving out of Kuwait City all the way up to the border between Iraq and Kuwait, there is a very, very nice highway, three lanes in each direction that heads all the way up to the border. You cross over the border into Iraq, and there is the same highway that travels for another four or five hours until there's like a little middle ground. And then you get up closer to Baghdad, it's like they started building the highway towards each other, and then somewhere in the middle they said, no, we're not doing this anymore. But in the middle, there's a stretch of about 300 miles of just a dirt road. But they had gone over into the side of the road a couple hundred yards away, and they excavated, not the sand, but they got down below the sand and excavated the good rock or the good bed soil. And so they brought it up on the roadway. So there's a roadway that's there. They just never finished paving the roadway. And so off to the side, several hundred yards away, you would follow. And there was a big, giant ditch or a big, giant ravine where they had excavated the, the, the clay or excavated the, the material for the roadbed. And so that traveled all along the side. But you would hit this area, two or three hundred miles. And when you knew you got it, it was going to be just like following on a dirt road in Lincoln County. So we'd hit that road, it'd be wide open, you're in the middle of the desert, and here we go, and of course the dust and everything is flying. So when you know when you got to that section, close the ranks, and you're driving along, and you're just following the person in front of you. Because the only person they can see at this point in time is the very lead truck. So what you're doing is you're just making sure you can keep seeing the truck behind you. Well, one particular mission we were running, and I was in the passenger seat because I was helping train a new driver. And we get there to that section, a sandstorm had set in, so normally with the visibility may have been a couple hundred feet, now the visibility was less than 75 feet, poor visibility. We hit this section of the road, and I told him, I said, now you need to make sure and watch the taillights of the truck in front of you. When they get too big, you slow down. When they get too small, you speed up, but you follow the taillights in front of you. Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. And we start taking off. An hour into this drive, he's doing okay. Tell I start getting smaller and smaller. They seem to disappear. And I said, you need to speed up. He said, okay, I'm going to speed up. And he starts speeding up. And, but we're not getting up to the taillights. And I asked him, I said, are you still on the road? He said, oh, absolutely. I know that I'm still on the road. And you know how you start getting that feeling in your gut? And I said, I don't think you're on the road. I know I'm on the road. I don't think you're on the road. I know that I'm on the road. You, you sped up. Oh, I sped up. And I said, you are not going the direction we're supposed to be going in. Oh, I know I'm going in the direction I'm supposed to be going in. And finally get to the point, I said, stop. And I get out. And from here to that television was the ravine. We had gone off the trajectory. Instead of going this direction, we had gone off and we were now headed head first into the ravine. Why? Because the person that was driving stopped following the way they should go. I put there in your notes that following leads to a destination. 
You see, sometimes we think that following is innocent. Sometimes we think that following is not a big deal. Sometimes we think that following has no consequences or it has no results of what we do. But every single time you and I make a choice that we are going to follow something that isn't from God, it puts us on a trajectory. It puts us in a direction that when we continue to follow, it will take us to a destination. How many people have we heard from addiction or pornography or broken homes that said, you know what, it didn't start with me intending to try to wreck my life. It started as a little choice and a little choice and a little more choice and a bigger choice. And the next thing you know, I put myself on a direction, the destination I was not prepared for, the destination I did not wish for, but the destination was something I wish I could go back and change. And some of you young people in this room, you need to understand that you're making choices today that will help plot your direction in life. And the choices you are making today will impact the destination you end up in life. The way that you are choosing to live your life today will determine how you will be living your life tomorrow. So the question that Adam and Eve are facing here in this text is what are we going to follow? That's the question that you and I have today. Matthew chapter four and verse 19, Jesus looks at those disciples and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter, or sorry, Paul says in his epistles, imitate me as I imitate Christ. All throughout the New Testament, we see this idea that we are to be following Jesus. Adam and Eve decided, we're not following him today. And I suggest to you this morning, the greatest, one of the greatest dangers we have in the home and in the family today is that we have people that aren't following the standards of God. And they may be saved, they may be lost, but they're refusing to follow the standards of God. So what happened in verse 7 of chapter 3? What happened when they decided not to follow God's standards? It says, and the eyes of the both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Everything changed. From that single bite of the fruit, everything changed, and it has come down through history. And the reason why we are in here this morning, one of the reasons why we're in here, and one of the reasons why we see division, and why we're the reason why we see unrest, and the lack of harmony, and we see all the things going on in the gender, and all the temptations, and the dangers, and the sinfulness going on in the world, is because one woman and one man chose to eat of the fruit. They chose to listen to the serpent, the serpent, the snake. They chose to submit to the words of this world, and they chose to follow after themselves instead of following after God. And our families have never been the same since. So am I implying that we can go back and restore our families and our homes to pre-Genesis 3? No. No. But I am imploring us as a church to not satisfy and to be content with the standards of this world. But let us understand this morning that we have a standard. We have a national institute of standards and technologies in the word of God. And it's not a matter of you and I reinventing what God has said to do. It's not a matter of you and I coming in and saying, well, we are going to define what is sin. We are going to define what it means to be a faithful man or woman in the eyes of God. We're going to define what success means for our children. We're going to define what holiness and faithfulness means for our homes. We come and we say, we have a standard. And we're going to use this standard. And this will be the standard that governs 
our homes and our families today. So then how do we do this? How do we as a church take this text in Genesis chapter 3 and apply it to supporting the home by pursuing God's design? Three things and we'll be done. The first one is that we need, we know God's standards. How do we then build families? We know God's standards. How are you to help hold accountable? How are you to help encourage? How do you to help exhort? How are you to be a kind of person that can say this is the standard of the word of God? We need to know God's standards. How do you know God's standards? You read God's word. You study God's word. You memorize God's word. You ingest God's word into your life. It's to the, such the thing that you know God's word so when someone says that this is an inch, you look at them and say, no, it's not. Why? Because you know God's word says, this is roughly an inch. Because you know the difference. You know the difference between right and wrong. You know the difference between God and this world. You know the difference between kingdom and fooey. You know the difference between up and down because you know what God's standards are. Not just that we know God's standards, but then number two, we practice God's standards. See, it's one thing to know God's standards. It's another thing to practice God's standards. There's a lot more knowledge that we have up here than actions than we do right here. There's a lot more stuff that we know about. Well, God's word says this somewhere. Well, I know that I should be doing this, and I know I shouldn't be doing that, and I know Spence ought to be doing this, and I know the church shouldn't be doing that or should be doing that. There's all these knowledge that we have, but very little practice. Practice God's standards. That means when people come up, they know here's what we're doing, and I am doing what God has told me to do. Not only do I know God's standards, but then I practice God's standards in our homes, in our marriages in our relationships with one another, in our conduct, in our workplace. We're practicing God's standards. And lastly, we're teaching God's standards. We teach God's standards. It's hard to teach what you don't know. And it's hard to model what you don't practice. And it's hard, it's hard to lead when you're not walking it yourself. And in no way do I want to look outside these walls and say, oh, we just need to get all these people figured out. We need to get all these people straightened out. And when that political party or that, political, that, that group of people or that organization or that, that social segment, whenever they get their mind right, then everything will be great. No, we have plenty of work to do inside this room to know God's standards, to practice God's standards, and to teach God's standards. Why? Why does it matter, Spence? Why does it make such a difference? Because our families are at stake. Because our families, your family, my family, this church family, this faith family, it is at stake. And we can look back to the example of the very first woman and man in creation. We can look back to the example here in Genesis chapter 3 and we can see this is what they should have done and this is what they didn't do and this is why they didn't do it. And we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from what they did wrong and we can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we can look around and we can say, let's build families. Not based upon a man's ideal, not based upon a personal agenda, but based upon the standards of God's word. Where are you at this morning? There may be somebody in this room this morning that doesn't even know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And you may say, well, how are you going to tie in a gospel presentation to this? I'm just going to tell you that God's standards is that you're a sinner and that you need to be saved. 
And maybe this morning is a day that you need to say, I'm going to start submitting to God's standards for my life. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're saved. There's not a doubt in your mind, but the reality is, is that you're not living by your standards. You're living by your standards. You're not living by God's standards. You're living by your standards. You're living by this world's standards. You're living on what feels good, what feels right, what you think is best. You're living by your own ideals and your own philosophies. Maybe today is the day that you just say, God, I need to put away those things in my life and submit to your standard for my life. Or maybe today is the day that you may say, well, Spence, I know I'm here. And Spence, I'm doing pretty good. But the reality is, is I'm just not following God the way I should. With my time, my resources, my talent, with my mouth, my spirit. I'm not following what God had me to do. I don't know where you're at this morning. But I do know that it's a choice that you're about to make how you're going to walk out of here this morning. Are you going to walk out of here this morning as someone that is committed to the standards of God for your life? Or are you going to walk out of here as someone in rebellion, disobedience to God? You bow your heads with me.